Welcome to Romans Untangled, the podcast where we take a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. Hey everyone, welcome to season three of Romans Untangled. Excited to kick off this season. This is the first episode and the title of this one is The Tension, God's Promises and Israel's Reality. We're going to look at the first five verses of Romans 9 this week. It's fall here in Minnesota and school's beginning and there's just excitement in the air as the chill comes and I am just thrilled to be back recording these episodes for you. So this is Pastor Steve Treichler and I want to welcome you back to another season of Romans Untangled. In the past, we've opened up with kind of a, a little bit of a, a, a training tool. We first started with a Bible study method or ways that we can look at Scripture. I, we did that our first season. And the second season, we took one theological term and kind of went through some of the big theological ideas that especially come up in the book of Romans. This season, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to in- introduce you to some faithful followers of Jesus throughout history who've had an impact on the world for Christ in spite of their flaws. None of these people are perfect. I want to look at a variety of, of different people. And so this week, I want to kick it off. Actually, this week and next week, I want to kick it off with two men uh, that were, you know, start of the church fathers, so to speak. Um, but most likely they were both black men. Um, church history would tell us, especially the first one, Athanasius, his opponents called him the black dwarf, which would indicate the darkness of his skin, but also he's a very short man. And so we want to look at this man, Athanasius, this week. He was born in 296 and he lived until 373. And uh, he was quite a man. His entire uh, his entire life was in the midst of significant controversy. Now we think church fights are a thing that just started, but no, it, it goes way back. And in the early days of Christianity, when the Bible was just written and the disciples were now had all died off and now the church was just expanding, uh, there was a lot of persecution and it forced the churches to kind of move around and there wasn't great communication between them. Then um, when Constantine comes along, he sees this, this sight of the cross before he goes into battle once, becomes a Christian. And now in the Roman Empire, Christianity is deemed the religion of the Roman Empire, at least under Constantine. And so now Christianity has state sponsoring. That can be a good thing. Most likely in church history, it's been a bad thing for the church. And what happens is power gets put into the church via the state. And all of a sudden now there's other interests here. Well, what happens at this time is the church is separated all over the place. And a man by the name of Arius comes up. And he he's, he's a theologian. He, he is he is uh, uh, a person who thinks along the lines of philosophy more than he does scripture. And he says this, and I quote, uh, he says, if the father begat the son, then he who was begotten had a beginning in existence. And from this, it follows, there was a time when the son was not. In other words, 
if Jesus truly was uh, the Son of God, then there was, he wasn't always eternally existing as you know this this son he he was created he was made okay this causes a huge controversy in the church because that's not the teaching that was being taught up until that time however the interesting thing is this takes off this teaching that Christ is god like but he's not really god uh it becomes uh, uh it becomes very dominant at this time and it's about that time that a young man by the name of Athanasius was the chief deacon assistant to the bishop of Alexandria. His name also was Alexander. So you have Alexander and Athanasius in Alexandria. I know it gets a little confusing. And these two spend the rest of their lives uh, fighting against Arius and Arianism, it's saying that this denies the idea of the Trinity. Okay? So... To, to Athanasius, who later in about three years becomes the bishop because Alexander dies, it is not a small issue to him. It is a huge issue. He is saying that if, if Christ was not fully God, he could not have paid the sacrifice for our sins. And the argument goes like this to, um, in Athanasius's mind, he says that if, if God, uh, excuse me, if Christ wasn't fully human, then he couldn't atone for our sin. But if he wasn't fully divine in every way possible, he wouldn't have the power or it wouldn't have been an infinite payment for that sin. And so therefore it doesn't work. All of Christianity falls apart if you don't hold on to the dual nature of Christ, fully man, fully God. He, he, to quote him, he says, those who maintained there was a time when the son was not rob God of his word like plunderers. Now, so he fights him his entire life. In fact, uh, at that time, it was winning the day. In, in, in a thing right now that we use basically as orthodoxy in the church, uh, there are very few people out there that would even come close to Christianity. Jehovah's Witnesses are probably the only one that would still hold to Arian or Arius's teachings. It's different than when you think of the Third Reich and they said Arian. It's a, it's a different spelling. It's a different different meaning. But that, that this Arian theology that Jesus was created not always of God. And so out of this comes the beautiful Nicene Creed, and they think that the that solves everything, and unfortunately it didn't. Um, those who supported Arius's views actually signed that document and were not uh, being straight up about it, and, and even though the Nicene Creed seems to make it extremely clear that uh, Christ was not made he was not created, and he he always existed. Uh, somehow they they just get around it, and Arian Arius and Arian thinking takes off, and it takes all of Athanasius's life for him. And he continually, through many trials, the man went through five different times in his life from four different Roman empires being exiled out of his land. And and so this man just stood up for Jesus. And the cool thing about him is he wasn't just a rigid theologian who was angry about things. 
He's, it, many people in that in his contemporaries at that time who who wrote after his death and wrote about him said what the most important thing about Athanasius was his simplicity and devotion to Jesus. While he's in exile, he continues to fight for uh, for the doctrine of the Trinity, and he also comes along and lays the framework for just a few years later for extreme clarity on the books of the New Testament. Now, they had been kind of accepted, but the church, we'd never had a church council until after Athanasius. And he uh, writes in one of his letters while he's in exile, he talks about these 27 books are alone the teaching of godliness is proclaimed. No one may add to them and nothing more be taken away from them. One of the resources that I'm using for this is uh, by Dr. John Piper, and it's based on his talks that he gave over over 20 years at his uh, pastor's conferences where he would do a historical figure and look at them. The, the book is in two different formats. If you want to get it all in one volume, it's called The 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy, Faithful, Flawed, and Fruitful, or you can buy them in smaller versions. It's the same thing. It's just all put together called The Swans Are Not Silent. It's a quote from the person we're going to look at next week, which is uh, Augustine or Augustine, however you say it. Piper says this. It says, he says, in Athanasius's lifelong battle for the deity of Christ against the Arians, who said that Christ was created, Athanasius said, and now he's quoting from Athanasius, he says, considering that this struggle is for our all, let us also make it our earnest care and aim to guard what we have received. When all is at stake, it is worth contending. This is what love does. What drove Athanasius is his love for Jesus Christ. And we stand today upon the backs of this man uh, because heresy did not win the day, ultimately. And it's almost just like you can go to almost any Christian church and fully God and fully man is just part of the documents of Every Christian church, you know, if they're really followers of Jesus. And so we owe a lot to this man, one of the church fathers, 296 to 373, Athanasius. Now, let's get on to Romans. We're starting this season. We're looking at chapters 9 through 11 and very, very excited about this. The first season, we did uh, chapters 1, 2, and half of chapter 3. And if I were to summarize that very briefly, oh my goodness, it's such a great, great section of scripture, but I would say it's the good news of the gospel. It's explaining um, that the righteousness of God has been revealed and has been revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ, not our own. On our own, our own sinfulness, we have no chance, but Christ comes in when there is no chance, when it's fourth and 99. And yes, I'm a Viking fan, and we faced a lot of difficulty even in our football game against the Lions here this last week. But the, 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 that's the beauty of the gospel is that it's about God and what Christ has done. Chapters four to eight, and there's a lot going on there, but if I were to over, give it an overall simple kind of title, I'd just say, well, then how then do we live? How then do we live now that we are that this gospel has been done? What difference does it make to the Christian life? What does spirit-filled living mean that we're no longer under law but under grace? And it ends with 
this in chapter 8, starting in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is, it is a beautiful ending to the first eight chapters. I mean, you honestly feel like you're on a beach somewhere, uh, you're, you're sipping a Mai Tai or whatever you like, and, and the, it's just beautiful day. It's this warmth. It feels like, man, this would be the great ending to a book. But Paul's not done. In fact, Kent Hughes in his commentary talks about the shift here, in emotion at least, is similar to, and we can we can definitely feel that here in, in Minnesota, where you're, you're in the fall especially, it can be like an 85-degree day, and all of a sudden a storm front comes in, and it drops 20 degrees in a matter of minutes, and a storm will roll through. And it, it will not, it will very quickly here in Minnesota at least, uh, we'll have that where we'll not even get snow, and maybe it would be 85, but it might be 45 or 55, and it'll drop 20 degrees in a day. And you just feel this, whoa, that completely changes. And that's what's happening here. So let's read it, and then we'll talk about this great section of Scripture. Romans 9, the first five verses. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So, this this chapters, these chapters, 9 to 11, are, are honestly life-changing. We're going to see massive questions that are asked, but the biggest questions that, that is asked is simply this. Wait a minute. What happened here? This is the Jewish story, and uh, what happened to the Jews? Let me quote a paragraph, which I think is really, really helpful, from Douglas Moo's uh, short, very short commentary, his encountering the book of Romans. He says this, before we become immersed in the issue of Israel and its future, we need to back up and take a broader view of Romans 9 through 11. Israel is not, finally, the main topic of these chapters. The main topic is the integrity of God. By the time Paul wrote Romans, the general makeup of the early church had become clear. It was composed of mainly Gentiles and relatively few Jews. We are so accustomed to this situation that it creates no surprise or shock. But this simple fact was one of the most difficult theological issues that the early church had to face. The Old Testament appears to promise that the messianic salvation will be for Jews with some Gentiles allowed in. Paul and the other early Christians proclaimed that the messianic salvation had come through Jesus of Nazareth. Why then was Israel not being redeemed as the Old Testament has promised? Why was the church a mainly Gentile body? 
Such questions cut right to the heart of the gospel, for if the gospel could not truly be seen as the continuation of God's plan from the Old Testament, then it would cease to be the gospel of God. And this goes back to Romans chapter 1, right? When he he talks about how it was part of the the whole storyline. God would seem to have changed his mind or gone back on his promises. In Romans 9 to 11, Douglas Moo says, Paul tackles this key theological question. And that's where we're going this season. The, the, big, the big idea this season is, wait a minute, Did, what was going on in the storyline? How can God possibly be faithful to the promises that he made to, these, to, the, to the Israelites, to the Jews, if, it, if so few of them are coming into the salvation that is there by Jesus? Now, one of the other things before we dive into this passage, and really today is just kind of a wet your appetite kind of thing for Romans 9 uh, through 11, and it admittedly it even is that's the way Paul sets it up as well. When in the, in the obviously in the 1930s and the 1940s, uh, we had probably one of the most horrific events in all of human history, which is the Holocaust. The rise of anti-Semitism, I'm I'm even watching a a documentary series right now on it on PBS called The U.S. and the Holocaust, and it it just shows how there's this rise of anti-Semitism around the world, and of course, it takes place through a variety of of things. One was just a hatred for the Jewish people, one was economics, another one was this whole idea of uh, genetics and uh, eugenics and all that kind of thing that was very prominent and about a superior race and on and on and on. But one of the things that historians have looked back on this and said, well, I don't think you Christians can say that you're not to blame for this. We, we, if, if Christianity is, is separating itself from Judaism, is separating itself from uh, the, the Jewish faith, then that's right field for this hatred to happen. And so, in other words, a lot of people are saying now, and looking back historically, saying the Christians were the problem of the Holocaust, in effect, to some degree. And Christian theologians have taken one of three pathways on this. Number one is they have said, you're right. You're right. We need to completely repent of that, that we cannot say that Jewish people are wrong in their faith, that rejecting Christ as Messiah, well, that's, that's an okay thing, okay? Uh, and the church's teaching about the Jews, uh, that's, that's wrong, okay? Two is the belief that's saying, no, actually Judaism is wrong, or I would argue better yet, it's incomplete without talking about and highlighting the very point of their entire storyline of scripture, uh, of of the storyline of Israel is Jesus. However, that does not make you anti-Jewish. It makes you anti the religion that neglects Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Now, that's, there's a tension there, I admit it, because it's, it's very difficult, especially in this culture, to disagree with someone and yet value them and love them, right? And, and be willing to even perhaps die for them, correct? Uh, it's very difficult to do that one. 
The third one is one that took place, and we'll get to this one when we get to Romans chapter 11. It's towards the end. But there was a rise um, after the Holocaust, especially with saying, wait a minute, we think there's passages here in in, uh, chapter 11 that would actually say, you know what? If you're Jewish and you do reject Jesus, you can actually be saved. You can actually be right with God. And and I remember a lot of dispensational thinking we'll talk about. There's actually different rules for Jewish people than there are for the rest of society. I remember hearing that as a young follower of Christ and kind of scratching my head and saying, I don't, I'm just very, very confused on this. Um, so, and we'll, we'll talk more about that one when we get to Romans uh, chapter 11, which is going to be the end of this season. Now, I want to look carefully at the passage we have before us, and I want to argue that the second option is by far the best choice. In fact, the third option to me makes absolutely no sense, as neither does the first option. I understand they're they're palatable because it makes it like a way to say everybody's happy, um, but I think that there's going to be this tension here, um, what we have uh, with the idea of saying that, no, we disagree with you, but we absolutely love you. So let me just go back through the passage and let you see it, okay? So here we go. I speak the truth in Christ. Now, he's just shifted gears, right? If you're just reading through this letter, there's no chapter divisions, there's no verse numbers. He's just got done saying, nothing will be able to sell, separate us from the love of Christ. It's just this high note. And then he just says, I speak the truth in, my, speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. It's basically his way of saying, hey, I got to tell you something really serious now. It's coming from my heart, and it's as genuine and real as anything I have. Verse 2, and he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. To say that Paul didn't care about the Jewish people was ridiculous. First of all, he is a Jew. All his family is Jewish. Uh, his his ancestors going back. He's probably got who knows you know what family gatherings are like for the Apostle Paul. If he still did a lot of those after he became a Christian or not, we don't know for sure. But these were this was his literally his tribe. This was these were his people. He says, "I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Many nights he will wake up crying over this." And then he says this. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. Now, listen to that real carefully, what the Apostle Paul is actually saying. He is saying that if it were possible, I would trade my own salvation and give it to the Israelite people. Now, this is the Apostle Paul who is, has a very good theology of what a Christless existence would be and a Christless eternity would be under the wrath of God. He just he just wrote about it in all of the book of Romans. And he says, if I could, I'd do it. I, I yeah, dude, that's that's in, that's intense. I don't know that I could say that. But here's the Apostle Paul. Here's his passion for these people because he loves it. So in those first three verses and and just a little bit of the verse four, it is very clear that Paul 
passionately loves the Jewish people. And if you're all a student of the Bible and you've read through any of the the book of Acts or other letters that Paul has written, he suffers a lot under Jewish persecution of his faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, he will look at them and say, man, if I could, I'd give you my salvation. I'd walk away from it. Dude, if I, that ain't love, deep love, I don't, I, don't, I don't know exactly what is. Let's keep moving on here. He says, theirs, this is the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship, the promise given to Abraham. Theirs, the divine glory. All of the stories, all of the exodus, all of the miracles, the covenants, the covenants made to Abraham, made to uh, reinforced with Isaac and the people of the 12 sons, given then to, to David and on and on and on. There's, and there's even a promise of a new covenant, right? Which will be fulfilled in Jesus. They received the law. They were the ones that were given the temple worship. And all of the promises in the Bible, especially the big ones, Abraham and others, those promises are theirs. He goes on then to say in verse five, theirs are the patriarchs, the the, the founders of us, the, the, the people in the Old Testament, the 12 sons and on. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And he says this. He recounts their history. He says, this is all theirs. This is all theirs. And yet that last part, they don't acknowledge. The human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all. There again, we see the deity of Jesus Christ right there in uh, Romans 9, verse 5. He recounts all of this history. In fact, if we look at the, the, the overall, you know, as we like to talk about the story of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration one day, it's like this whole storyline is all, the, the, this, the Jewish people have it all, and yet... They miss the most important part, Jesus Christ as Messiah. And that's no, that's no small little piece to miss, right? They miss that. And the question that's going through Paul's mind and much of the early church, like uh, Professor Mu uh, said to us is, what happened? And that's where I'm going to tease you and leave you for next week. That's exactly where we're going next week, and that's exactly where the Apostle Paul is going to go. So come back next week as we explore that very question next week on Romans Untangled.